The Life, Crime, and Capture of John Wilkes Booth by George Alfred Townsend. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 4. The Assassin's Death. Washington, April 28th, 8 p.m. Part 1. A hard and grisly face overlooks me as I write. Its inconsiderable forehead is crowned with turning sandy hair, and the deep concave of its long, insatiate jaws is almost hidden by a dense red beard, which cannot still abate the terrible decision of the large mouth, so well sustained by searching eyes of spotted gray, which roll and rivet one. This is the face of Lafayette Baker, colonel and chief of the Secret Service. He has played the most perilous parts of the war, and is the capturer of the late President's murderer. The story that I am to tell you, as he and his trusty dependents told it to me, will be aptly commenced here, where the net was woven which took the dying life of Wilkes Booth. When the murder occurred, Colonel Baker was absent from Washington. He returned on the third morning, and was at once besought by Secretary Stanton to join the hue and cry against the escaped Booth. The sagacious detective found that nearly ten thousand cavalry and one-fourth as many policemen had been meantime scouring, without plan or compass, the whole territory of southern Maryland. They were treading on each other's heels and mixing up the thing so confoundedly that the best place for the culprits to have gone would have been in the very midst of their pursuers. Baker at once possessed himself of the little the War Department had learned, and started immediately to take the usual detective measures till then neglected, of offering a reward and getting out photographs of the suspected ones. He then dispatched a few chosen detectives to certain vital points, and awaited results. The first of these was the capture of Atzerodt. Others, like the taking of Dr. Mudd, simultaneously occurred. But the district suspected, being remote from the railway routes and broken by no telegraph station, the colonel, to place himself nearer the theatre of events, ordered an operator, with the necessary instrument, to tap the wire running to Point Lookout, near Chapel's Point, and send him prompt messages. The same steamer which took down the operator and two detectives brought back one of the same detectives and a negro. This negro, taken to Colonel Baker's office, stated so positively that he had seen Booth and another man cross the Potomac in a fishing boat while he was looking down upon them from a bank that the colonel was at first skeptical but when examined the negro answered so readily and intelligently recognizing the men from the photographs that baker knew at last that he had the true scent straight away he sent to general hancock for twenty-five men and while the order was going drew down his coast survey maps with that quick detective intuition amounting almost to inspiration he cast upon the probable route and destination of the refugees as well as the point where he would soonest strike them booth he knew would not keep along the coast with frequent deep rivers to cross nor indeed in any direction east of richmond where he was liable at any time to cross our lines of occupation nor being lame could he ride on horseback so as to place himself very far westward of this point of debarkation in virginia but he would travel in a direct course from bluff point where he crossed to eastern tennessee and this would take him through port royal on the rappahannock river in time to be intercepted there by the outgoing cavalrymen. When, before twenty-five men under one Lieutenant Dougherty, arrived at his office door, 
Baker placed the whole under control of his former lieutenant colonel, E.J. Conger, and of his cousin, Lieutenant L.B. Baker, the first of Ohio, the last of New York, and bade them go with all dispatch to Belle Plain on the lower Potomac, there to disembark and scour the country faithfully around Port Royal, but not to return unless they captured their men. Conger is a short, decided, indomitable, courageous fellow, provincial in his manners, but fully understanding his business, and collected as a housewife on Sunday. Young Baker is large and fine-looking, a soldier, but no policeman, and he deferred to Conger, very properly, during most of the events succeeding. Quitting Washington at two o'clock p.m. on Monday, the detectives and cavalrymen disembarked at Belle Plain on the border of Stafford County at ten o'clock in the darkness. Belle Plain is simply the nearest landing to Fredericksburg, seventy miles from Washington City, and located upon Potomac Creek. It is a wharf and warehouse merely, and here the steamer John S. Ide stopped and made fast while the party galloped off in the darkness. Conger and Baker kept ahead, riding up to farmhouses and questioning the inmates, pretending to be in search of the Maryland gentlemen belonging to the party. But nobody had seen the parties described, and after a futile ride on the Fredericksburg Road they turned shortly to the east, and kept up their baffled inquiries all the way to Port Conway on the Rappahannock. On Tuesday morning they presented themselves at the Port Royal Ferry, and inquired of the ferryman, while he was taking them over in squads of seven at a time, if he had seen any two such men. Continuing their inquiries at Port Royal, they found one Rollins, a fisherman, who referred them to a negro named Lucas, as having driven two men a short distance toward Bowling Green in a wagon. It was found that these men answered to the description, Booth having a crutch, as previously ascertained. The day before Booth and Harold had applied at Port Conway for the general ferry-boat, but the ferryman was then fishing and would not desist for the inconsiderable fare of only two persons. But to their supposed good fortune, a lot of Confederate cavalrymen just then came along, who threatened the ferryman with a shot in the head if he did not instantly bring across his craft and transport the entire party. These cavalrymen were of Mosby's disbanded command, returning from Fairfax Courthouse to their homes in Caroline County. Their captain was on his way to visit a sweetheart at Bowling Green, and he had so far taken Booth under his patronage that when the latter was haggling with Lucas for a team, he offered both Booth and Harold the use of his horse to ride and walk alternately. In this way Lucas was providentially done out of the job, and Booth rode off toward Bowling Green behind the Confederate captain on one and the same horse. So much learned, the detectives, with Rollins for a guide, dashed off in the bright daylight of Tuesday, moving southwestward through the level plains of Caroline, seldom stopping to ask questions, save at a certain halfway house, where a woman told them that the cavalry party of yesterday had returned, minus one man. As this was far from circumstantial, the party rode along in the twilight and reached Bowling Green at eleven o'clock in the night. This is the courthouse town of Caroline County, a small and scattered place having within it an ancient tavern, no longer used for other than lodging purposes. But here they hauled from his bed the captain aforesaid, and bade him dress himself. As soon as he comprehended the matter, he became pallid and eagerly narrated all the facts in his possession. 
Booth, to his knowledge, was then lying in the house of one Garrett, which they had passed, and Harold had departed the existing day with the intention of rejoining him. Taking this captain along for a guide, the worn-out horsemen retraced, though some of the men were so haggard and wasted with travel that they had to be kicked into intelligence before they could climb to their saddles. The objects of the chase thus at hand, the detectives, full of sanguine purpose, hurried the cortege so well along that by two o'clock early morning all halted at Garrett's gate. In the pale moonlight three hundred yards from the main road, to the left, a plain old farmhouse looked grayly through its environing locusts. It was worn and whitewashed and two-storied, and its half-human windows glowered down upon the silent cavalrymen like watching owls, which stood as sentries over some horrible secret asleep within. The front of this house looked up the road toward the Rappahannock, but did not face it, and on that side a long Virginia porch protruded, where in the summer, among the honeysuckles, the humming bird flew like a visible odor. Nearest the main road, against the pallid gable, a single-storied kitchen stood, and there were three other doors, one opening upon the porch, one in the kitchen gable, and one in the rear of the farmhouse. Dimly seen behind, an old barn, high and weather-beaten, faced the roadside gate, for the house itself lay to the left of its own lane, and nestling beneath the barn, a few long corn-cribs lay with a cattle-shed at hand. There was not a swell of the landscape anywhere in sight. A plain dead level contained all the tenements and structures. A worm fence stretched along the road, broken by two battered gate-posts, and between the road and the house the lane was crossed by a second fence and gate. The farmhouse lane, passing the house front, kept straight on to the barn, though a second carriage track ran up to the port. It was a homely and primitive scene enough, pastoral as any farm boy's birthplace, and had been the seat of many toils and endearments. Young wives had been brought to it, and around its hearth the earliest cries of infants, gladdening mothers' hearts, had made the household jubilant till the stars came out and were its only sentries, save the bright lights at its window-panes as of a campfire, and the suppressed choruses of the domestic bivouac within, where apple-toasting and nut-cracking and country games shortened the winter shadows. Yet in this house, so peaceful by moonlight, murder had washed its spotted hands and ministered to its satiated appetite. History, present in every nook in the broad young world, had stopped to make a landmark of Garrett's farm. In the dead stillness, Baker dismounted and forced the outer gate. Conger kept close behind him, and the horsemen followed cautiously. They made no noise in the soft clay, nor broke the all-foreboding silence anywhere, till the second gate swung open gratingly. Yet even then, nor horse nor shrill response came back, save distant croaking, as of frogs or owls, or the whiz of some passing night-hawk. So they surrounded the pleasant old homestead, each horseman carbine in poise, adjusted under the grove of locusts, so as to enclose the dwelling with a circle of fire. After a pause, Baker rode to the kitchen door on the side, and dismounting, rapped and hallowed lustily. An old man, in drawers and nightshirt, hastily undrew the bolts, and stood on the threshold, peering shiveringly into the darkness. Baker seized him by the throat at once, and held a pistol to his ear. "'Who—who who is that calls me?' cried the old man. 
"'Where are the men who stay with you?' challenged Baker. "'If you prevaricate, you are a dead man.' The old fellow, who proved to be the head of the family, was so overawed and paralyzed that he stammered and shook and said not a word. "'Go light a candle,' cried Baker sternly, "'and be quick about it.' The trembling old man obeyed, and in a moment the imperfect rays flared upon his whitening hairs and bluishly pallid face. Then the question was repeated, backed up by the glimmering pistol, Where are those men? The old man held to the wall, and his knees smote each other. They are gone, he said. We haven't got them in the house. I assure you that they are gone. Here there were sounds and whisperings in the main building adjoining, and the lieutenant strode to the door. A ludicrous instant intervened. The old man's modesty outran his terror. "'Don't go in there,' he said feebly. "'There are women undressed in there.' "'Damn the women!' cried Baker. "'What if they are undressed? "'We shall go in if they haven't a rag.' Leaving the old man in mute astonishment, Baker bolted through the door and stood in an assemblage of bare arms and night-robes. His loaded pistol disarmed modesty of its delicacy and substituted, therefore, a seasonable terror." Here he repeated his summons, and the half-light of the candle gave to his face a more than bandit ferocity. They all denied knowledge of the stranger's whereabouts. End of Letter 4, Part 1